Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Kaner, joined as always by fellow editor Katie Lambert. Hey, Candace. Hey there, Katie. We have got a special request today that came in from Mallory, who works at the Louisiana State Museum, and she wrote to us and suggested that we talk about how Storyville worked. And it's a fascinating suggestion, one that we could not say no to, but before we launch into our discussion of New Orleans' famous red-light district of yore, I did want to say that if there are any younger listeners out there, you may want to put on your earmuffs. We don't have any uh, salacious information. It is all based in fact. But perhaps consider the content before you go any further. That said, here we go. (laughs) So Storyville was a legal 20-block red-light district in New Orleans, but it wasn't the first. After the Civil War, there were actually quite a few cities who were battling with certain areas of vice. And after the Civil War in general and the Reconstruction era south, and even in some parts of the north, really, um, you have to consider that a lot of men had been killed at war, women were left widowed, and they had children to care for, and they had to find some way to get by. In Women, Work, and Family in the Antebellum Mountain South, Wilma A. Dunaway explains that prostitution was actually a type of honest work because it was a job. It wasn't begging, so women could actually support themselves and their children instead of relying on the community for handouts. And an interesting thing about New Orleans was that in 1721, King Louis XIV actually sent convicted Parisian prostitutes to Louisiana. And you have to put yourself back in time to think about Louisiana for what it was. It was a a swampy and mosquito-ridden place that a lot of people were not enthusiastic to go to. So he figured he would excommunicate these women, and there would at least be women in the colony to uh, be fruitful and multiply. (sighs) And if you keep up with the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog, this may sound like a somewhat familiar plan, because this was the same Louis who had the, the fee de raw who went to Canada to be fruitful and multiply there. So, <laughs> such a classy way. Of I know. It's <laughs> such a great way of, of getting women to these new territories that you own. Um, send the prostitutes, send the, the young marriable ones. <laughs> it worked, except that New Orleans became sort of nationally recognized as a city of vice. So in Alderman Sidney Story suggested Ordinance Number 13,032 in 1897, He thought he was doing something good by controlling vice, by putting one area of the city and setting that apart for certain unsavory activities because that sort of thing was running rampant in New Orleans. And he thought if he put all the prostitutes in a 20-block area, that that would save the rest of the city. And he was devastated when they called it Storyville. Sort of sullied his good name there. (laughs) Good man with a plan. But the ordinance actually didn't make prostitution legal in that area. It just made it illegal everywhere else. So it was a tricky little way of getting that through. And in the Encyclopedia of Prostitution and Sex Work, (laughs) yes, there is such a book, Melissa Hope Dittmore explains, and this is a direct quote, I have to share it with you, the district was famous for its extravagant bordellos, its jazz music, and its promotion of interracial sex and octoroon prostitutes at the beginning of the Jim Crow era. And ultimately, this would be the downfall of Storyville, or one of the downfalls, because it was a, a part of the Deep South that was not honoring the code of Jim Crow laws, you know, is where blacks and whites mixed and people were very uncomfortable with that. 
So if we think about the area of Storyville, and let's put this in a little bit of context, it was set within Iberville, Basin, St. Louis, and Robertson Streets. And like Katie had mentioned, this was about 1820 square blocks, and it was situated between the French Quarter and the American section, which was the business district. And before the end of the rail line, it actually passed through part of Storyville, and so the women would make themselves very well known by um, displaying their, their wares from windows and balconies. And to Sydney's story's chagrin... Uh, instead of keeping prostitution in a centralized place that was sort of hush-hush, it actually gained a loud and body reputation that attracted national attention. And before Storyville actually became the, the big thing, the big part of this district, there was already a motley assortment of people and business there. And one of the most famous was um, George Lote, whose lumber company was pretty pretty profitable and doing pretty well. And he had a wife and eight children. And he actually filed a lawsuit against the city to keep Storyville out of his neighborhood. And this went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ultimately deferred to the city of New Orleans. But an amendment that uh, moved to include St. Louis Street as part of the boundaries also established a four-block uptown district. And this... Right. This, like Katie was explaining to me earlier, didn't really take off like Storyville proper did. Basically, Storyville was white, and there were a couple of brothels that were racially mixed. But this little four-block area was known as Black Storyville, and that was the blocks between Perdido and Gravier and Locust and Franklin. And there was quite a bit of crime there, lots of fights, lots of murders, lots of drug addiction, And it wasn't quite the classy, extravagant bordellos of white Storyville. Instead, they had cribs, which were rooms you rented by the hour, honky-tonks, dance halls, most infamously Funky Butt Hall, where Buddy Bolden, jazz royalty, um, a schizophrenic cornetist, used to play. And that is where Louis Armstrong grew up. Interesting bit of trivia. Well, there you go. And as far as Storyville, like Kitty was suggesting... The bordellos that were there were uh, quite the things to see. One of the most famous would have been Lulu White's Mahogany Hall, which cost nearly $40,000 to build. And if you'll allow a, a little bit of give and take here, that would equate to about $1,021,959 to build today. So you can imagine quite the establishment. And this would have included four stories with um, a marble staircase, 15 bedrooms and water closets. Oh, yes, very thin. It's not full-on bathrooms, mind you. And then, um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the more interesting sites would have been a room with floor-to-ceiling mirrors. I don't and know what that was used for, though. <laughs> <laughs> and I did enjoy, when I was doing research for this, reading about some of the different madams who were all very colorful in their way. And there was actually a publication put out called The Blue Book, that listed the different houses and the different proprietors and maybe some of the girls that you would see. And this is an excerpt about Countess Willie Piazza, who is one of the more famous madams. said, It is the one place in the Tenderloin District you can't very well afford to pass up. The Countess Piazza has made it a study to try and make everyone jovial who visits her house. If you have the blues, the Countess and her girls can cure them. She has, without doubt, the most handsome and intelligent octoroons in the United States. You should see them. They are all cultivated entertainers. 
If there's anything new in the singing and dancing line that you'd like to see while in Storyville, Countess Piazza's is the place to visit, especially when one is hopping out with friends, the women in particular. The Countess wishes it to be known that while her maison, maison joie is peerless in every respect, she only serves the amber fluid. Just ask for Willie Piazza. And if you're wondering what an octoroon is, Merriam-Webster defines it as a person of one-eighth black ancestry. And some of the blue books went so far as to designate what kind of prostitutes you would right. find at the different bordellos. So a W was white, C for colored, Oct for octoroon. And there was also designations for French and Jewish prostitutes. And going back to Miss Piazza, she was considered to be very cultured and also a leader of fashion in New Orleans. The country club ladies would follow her around to see what she was wearing. She spoke several different languages, had a fantastic library, and she and Madame Lulu were the only black owners of brothels in Storyville. And it wasn't unusual for residents of New Orleans to look toward the demi-mondaines, as they were called, for the latest in fashion. And prostitutes would largely go shopping on Sundays, on which days many of the city's Residents and students were warned to stay away from Canal Street, but they certainly turned some heads because they were forward thinkers in terms of uh, their dresses and their makeup and accessories, and there were even some lipstick shades named after them. My other favorite madam I read about was Hilma Burt, who was also known for being a lady of fashion, and jazz musician Jelly Roll Morton actually got his start in her mansion. And this is a direct quote from him talking to a historian well, I never made Never No Night As I Remember under $100, and it was a very bad night when we made under $100. It was very often men would come into the houses and hand you a 20 or hand you a 40 or $50 note. It was just like a match. Wine flowed much more than water did during those periods. Many of those houses, there's more wine sold than beer. So these establishments were known for catering to gentlemen in general, and there is a bit of a misconception going around that jazz started in Storyville when really... Jazz was more in black Storyville, like I said, where Louis Armstrong grew up, even if some of the musicians did get their start over in white Storyville. But for all the financial success of Storyville, it was it was built on some inherent contradictions. For instance, uh, black women and octoroons specifically were employed there, but black men were not allowed to be patrons. And right. in fact, they were banned, even though there were some black and white madams who ran these bordellos. And Sidney's story had gotten his idea for the legalization, or shall I say the, the non-illegalization of Storyville in this particular district from uh, uh, legalized prostitution quarters that existed in other parts of the world. But I don't think that anyone in New Orleans anticipated the kind of national attention that would come to Storyville and the kind of a huge reputation and colorful reputation that would overcome the entire city. And so we have issues of blacks and whites clashing in the South, which is still very racially divided. And uh, modern theorists who look back with a critical eye at Storyville talk about how, in a sense, the, the type of ways in which a, a black woman could offer up her body for sale and reap the benefits were almost somehow redemptive if you if you look at the idea that slavery benefited her in no way. She was sold for money and she worked for a white man and they're saying that Storyville 
sort of turned this premise on its head. She could use her body as she pleased and reap the benefits. But still, this is a very controversial point of view. And by the same token, uh, white women were also becoming, as Jessica Adams writes in Wounds of Returning, commodified or potentially commodifiable things. So some people would call this type of prostitution white slavery. But at least some people would say, some of the critics I was reading, they got a cut of the money with some of this. And Storyville was very lucrative. Tulane and the Archdiocese of New Orleans actually made quite a bit of money off Storyville. And according to one estimate, um, Storyville was making $1 million a month. Did you run the inflation calculator on that I did one? not. <laughs> you can only imagine if $40,000 was almost $1 million today. $1 million back then would have been... I can't even do math like it that. It was a lucrative Someone business. Someone else help us out. Send us, send us an email. <laughs> a math major. <laughs> um, all joking aside, though, eventually, uh, along with the start of World War One, the national government turned its attention towards Storyville and decided that Storyville was to be no more. And New Orleans Mayor Martin Behrman is supposedly famous for saying, you can make it, it being prostitution, illegal, but you can't make it unpopular. In February of 1917, the city of New Orleans passed a new ordinance, and this one said that part of Storyville could only be for white prostitutes, and they were creating a totally new part for black prostitutes, which meant that the houses we talked about before with the Octoroon women and the black houses would have to move. So my favorite, Countess Willie Piazza, looked for an injunction against the city of New Orleans, and the city wouldn't grant it, the court wouldn't grant it, They appealed to the Supreme Court of Louisiana, and they wouldn't grant it either. So her appeal was denied, and it seemed like it was going to happen. And then the Secretary of War got involved. And so Woodrow Wilson put his hand down and explained that any type of establishment or activity which could potentially cause harm to a a young soldier or sailor couldn't exist. We were entering World War One. We needed all of the able-bodied men that we could spare right. to go over and fight. And um, allowing prostitution to thrive in the South was not going to work any longer. And New Orleans had a reputation of being kind of the, the Babylon of the South. Some people called it at the time. So it was a bit like Sodom, and people had about had it up to there. And that signaled the end of Storyville, which happened at midnight on November 12th, 1917. In the 1930s, in an effort to erase its memories of the past, uh, New Orleans raised Storyville. And put the Iberville Federal Housing Projects in their place. And I think only three of those buildings remain from Storyville today. The Mahogany House wasn't able to be saved. And if you're curious, you can actually pull up Google Maps. And I entered Storyville just for, you know, kicks and giggles to see if it would put me in some sort of reasonable district of where it once stood. And as far as I could tell, it did. So I, I don't know any New Orleans locals, but um, I'm sure that if you ask people, they would still be able to point you in the right direction of, of where it once stood. And if you have the general boundaries, even though the street names were also altered to help erase the boundaries of once constituted the prostitution district. I, I think it's a memory that New Orleans will will have for a long time to come. There's a book I keep trying to locate over the past couple days by Al Rose, which I think is the most famous Storyville tale, but I'd take a look at it if I could find it. I think it's issued by the University of Alabama Press, so it's a little bit hard to get your hands on. And the title of the book is Storyville, New Orleans. So if you want to learn more about Reconstruction South, New Orleans, and jazz, please take a look at the website, www.howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 